it's a story of a young hacker that, that got carried away, seeing what was possible with the MySpace platform, which sounds like the beginning of my story. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's every programmer's novel starts that this way. This could have been your future, Sarah. Couchbase is an enterprise-class, multi-cloud-to-edge, NoSQL database architected on top of an open-source foundation. It's unique because it was formed by the collision of two ideas from different original projects. Couchbase combines a memory-first design built for high performance with a SQL-friendly query language called Nickel that accesses key values in JSON documents for flexibility. It's easy for developers to use, supports mobile development, and offers SDKs for Java, .NET, JavaScript, Go, and Python. Try out their online Nickel query tutorial to see how easy it is to get JSON data back from a select statement. Try the query at couchbase.com tutorial. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. I'm Sarah Chips, and I'm here with my co-hosts. Ben Popper and Paul Ford. How's it going? Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hello, it's friends. Well. Our stacks are overflowing. It's just a, what a day. <laughs> Our yeah. stacks Bounty. overfloweth. Bountiful stacks. Mm -hmm. My son actually loves Stack Overflow, the, the name and the logo on the t-shirt. He, <laughs> he loves chaos, you know? So he's like, oh, it means it's breaking, right? It's falling over. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. We make things fall over. He's like, cool. He thinks I you're a he thinks you're like a stuntman <laughs> in Mar Marvel movies. Yeah, he thinks I'm in he thinks I'm in demolition or something. But exactly. you're in something cooler, which is marketing for Stack Overflow, man. That's where they are. That's that's what my kids ask me. They come up behind me in the pandemic and watch me work, and it, they're just horrified because it's boring, right? Like they don't think <laughs> it's, it's so exciting. Boring. <laughs> it's so boring. It just and then every, every now and then they'll catch me looking at YouTube, and they'll be like, "That's cool. You get to do that at work." And I'm like, eh. anyway, that. <laughs> That's not why we're here today, <laughs> no. Sarah. Yeah, speaking of things crashing and falling, Sarah, you want to introduce our guest today? Yeah, today we have a special guest. Her name's Rachel Troy. She is a product manager at Full Stack Academy and focuses on what their cybersecurity program. So last week, as we all know, there was a big hack on Twitter, and I thought it would be great to have her on to talk to us about big hacks. How's it going, Rachel? Hey, guys. So nice to be able to chat with you this morning. So, wait, Rachel, can you describe the Twitter hack? Uh, I'm definitely not an expert. My understanding is that there was, it seems like it was somewhat of an inside job, right? Someone had access to these admin panels and was selling the ability to sort of rewrite the recovery email address so that you could take over the account. And someone seems like they paid for access to the whole admin account. And once they had access to the account, they could turn off to factor authentication so that people weren't getting text messages when these emails were being reset and then they were able to take over those accounts and set up these Bitcoin scams. Such low stakes. Yeah. They could have started a war, but no. No, they just wanted yeah. money. Greed, apparently. Wait, but I've heard speculation, though, that maybe the Bitcoin scam was just the front and they were they were mining the DMs the whole time. And the, Where have you heard that speculation? On, on the Discord servers where he <laughs> spends most of his time? Yeah. <laughs> You know. What I love is they finally, someone finally found a way to pay for Twitter's product, you know, like non-advertiser. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, sick burn. <laughs> Zing. Okay. All right. That was a bad one. And like the rest of the computer industry, that caused us to suddenly think about security for the first time in about two years. <laughs> yeah. It's really, you know, I think every team was like, hey, we don't do this, do we? 
at work. Oh, oh, oh yeah. We don't have one of those admin tools. Stack was kind of proud that it doesn't, right? Like it doesn't have an admin takeover function. We were, but then we looked into it and we've got some stuff we need to fix. We were proud of it and we bragged about it on Twitter and now we're fixing some This things. is all of us and our bodies and our racism and our sexism. <laughs> like this is all of us, Ben. It's not, it's not just our security. We're working yeah. on it every day. Yeah. Rachel, I guess one of the things that interests me about that is that in some ways they're exploiting the security system to make it more difficult to derail them like once they've gotten in. Is that something that's talked about in cybersecurity? Like the idea that you build these defenses and you build these, you know, two-factor authentication methods, you know, sort of uh, authenticity checks. But if somebody gets deep inside, those can actually sort of be used against you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we often will build features for convenience and security is sort of like a second thought. And so to mm. me, the idea of an admin panel for which you can turn off two-factor authentication seems like a real security concern, but I can see from the other side of things where you're just trying to help someone who may have legitimately lost access to their account and you can't do so without sort of these additional features. Right. So I think that in general, security has in the past been sort of not forefront in terms of product development, but I think that is changing. What's really interesting to me about the Twitter hack is that, and I think it's true in a lot of hacks, is that the weakest linked in your security is often the people that work for you and not necessarily the feature that is getting hacked or the vulnerability that's being used. Yeah, it's not the zero day that nobody thought of and some super genius came up with. It's just the repeated phishing emails that one of them finally connects. Yeah, nobody disassembled a binary on this one. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there was like a chat room. The root cause always seems to be good intentions. Like when you get it all the way back, it's always like, well, we thought that would make it a lot easier for everyone to know, boy. <laughs> um, so, Rachel, we asked if you knew of any other good hacks and you sent us an amazing list of like all the hacks. <laughs> so, first of all, explain that. Like you're you're apparently a huge hack fan. And I like tell us a little bit about how you got to be a huge hack fan and, and, and where this part of your career came from. Sure. Yeah. Interesting question. So I. I have a background in sort of working in technology education. So I've been at Full Stack mm -hmm. Academy, which is a tech boot camp for two years, uh, both on the web development side. And then they launched the first cybersecurity boot camp in partnership with New York City a year ago in 2019. And so I transitioned to help with launching of that product. And what was really exciting for me about making that transition was seeing this sort of, I think more and more we hear about these security breaches every day through news that we read and, you know, it's very mainstream even. Like, it was not very difficult for me to put together this list because <laughs> it's very, it's becoming very common. And so that was really what got me interested in this as a field, cybersecurity as a field. And I think that's the, like, kind of sexy part of cybersecurity is, like, all the hacks and how people pull them off and what they did with whatever it is that they won. And I think that's kind of what can draw you in. And then, of course, there's all the, the great stuff underneath that, too. So that's how I got here. Rachel, what, what is the connection between the boot camp and New York City? Like, what is the government connection there? Sure. So the city of New York established a $100 million private-public investment fund called Cyber NYC that they, they spread out those funds over six work streams that were designed to sort of make New York City the Silicon Valley for cybersecurity. And so there were a couple different work streams. There's an accelerator space. There's sort of like a community space. And the workforce training element that they are 
partner that they chose was Full Stack Academy. So they helped us launch that first boot camp. And so I guess one of the other things that I wanted to ask, and, and Sarah, if you have any questions, please feel free to jump in. But when I was a reporter, one of the things that was most interesting to me, and then this came up when I switched over into communications because we had a big kerfuffle with it at DJI, was the bounty bug bounty programs. I think to me that's so interesting because it, it mimics in some way you know, what a Stack Overflow does, where anybody on the public web can come and start to poke around, and you can report these problems. And if you do it enough, you gain a certain amount of reputation and you're trusted, and then you can start to get paid for finding these problems. And that to me seems like the only way at scale, and obviously you're not going to find everything, but the only way at scale to really do, you know, cover all the attack services, which is basically to say like, feel free to try and attack us, but we're going to pay you upfront a pretty good price and you don't have to worry about going to jail, you know, after this is over. What's your take on bug bounty programs? I thought that they were fascinating. I don't know how old they are, but it seems like you know, there's now like these startups like HackerOne that are kind of trying to make a bug bounty as a service. Yeah, I think bug bounty programs are awesome. I think that there are a lot of people who hacking and penetration testing is in some time for some people, even an addiction. It's like something that's like very fascinating and they can be very passionate about and, and it's really hard to do it. And it's very involves a lot of creativity. And so I think finding a way for those skills to be used in a beneficial way is a great way to, like you say, prevent these skills from being used in sort of malicious attacks. And it it benefits the companies and it benefits the people who are doing it. So I don't know if you've ever listened to the Darknet Diaries podcast. It's all about cybersecurity. I can highly recommend it. But they interviewed a hacker who was sort of on the wrong side of law for many years, went to jail, had a really hard time getting a like computer oriented job when he came out and started doing bug bounty programs and is now making, you know, six figures a year just hunting down bugs. And I think that that's a pretty great success story. Yeah, I guess the thing that that makes me think is when you say like it involves a lot of creativity and it can be almost addictive, it's like, oh yeah, this is what people think about when they think about being really good at coding, you know, like it's like that it's like this fun peeking under the hood, pulling things apart, you know, kind of like puzzle solving Word rollerblades. Um, <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's the fantasy of the engineer, right? Yeah. I mean, it's actually such a destructive fantasy because most engineers are people who go to work and do kind of boring work and then get it done and go home and they're proud of the things they did as opposed to like staying up until two in the morning, hacking into the mainframe. But I mean, Rachel, do you ever do you ever get like the get the itch? Do you ever go like, you know? I could really do some damage right about now. I have a little bit of information in my pocket. Tell us on this podcast. No one's listening. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, you know, I am definitely new to cybersecurity. And so I would say that I get the itch to learn, you know, how to become mm. dangerous. I wouldn't say that I'm dangerous just quite yet, but I do really enjoy the sort of like problem solving aspect of it. I think it is really about sort of looking at a system and trying to see or even like a set of rules and see like what is outside this set of rules what is you know mm-hmm. if i change the orientation of this thing is there some weakness point here is there something that is sort of not covered in the mindset of the person who designed this system i think all of that mm-hmm. sort of analytical and problem solving thinking is really interesting and so maybe mm-hmm. in the future, I'll be able to have those skills to <laughs> utilize those uh, passions. What do you see about the people that are taking your program? Do they have the drive for that? Why are they getting into cybersecurity? 
Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's different for a lot of people. Interestingly enough, which makes me feel good about the world, is that a lot of people are interested in doing this because they see it as a way of protecting society and like giving back. You know, sometimes it's nice to feel like people want to do that as their life's work, especially when it's in a field that can be so malicious and nefarious. So I would say that there's an interest in like justice and do-gooding. Mm-hmm. I think that there's also some people are in this space where they are looking for something that is maybe like cool or like, you know, counterculture or something. And and they get to do, they kind of like get to break the rules, but do it in a way that they're not going to be punished. I think that that's uh, an attractive force also. And then, of course, there are people who are just like interested in technical training and really love computers. And oftentimes we'll see people who have like backgrounds in IT and want to sort of further their understanding of, you know, how systems work. Rachel, what is your favorite hack of all time? Oh, so... There's so many. There's so many. so many of these little... They're like pets. <laughs> well, uh, Rachel, you sent us this awesome list, and I was reading through it, and the MySpace one really stood out. Yeah. Can you talk us through that one a little bit? Sure. I think it's safe territory since yeah. MySpace is... So, yeah, what happened? Tell I only us more. Vag- I vaguely remember this. Okay, so MySpace, the early social network... One and you could hack MySpace, right? You could mess with it. You could mess and with it in the early days. In a good way, like change your CSS, write some, you know, right. write some HTML, so on and so forth. So somebody figured out how to just like what, what happened. Yeah. So I like this one also. It's pretty old, back in 2005. This individual, Sammy Kamkar, was sort of like a young hacker. He dropped out of high school around 16, started his own technology company, and was sort of like messing around on MySpace. He was really into the fact that, like you said, you could manipulate the HTML and CSS and sort of customize MySpace. And he wanted to see, similar to what I mentioned earlier with people like trying to see what is possible and what's not possible, he wanted to see like, okay, what, you know, what rules are here and what can I break? And so he started with photos. I think MySpace was like, you can only have 12 photos. And he was like, I want 13 photos. I don't know why you need a 13th photo, but you do. Because um, then you're really cool. And people are like, wait, your profile has extra photos. How I did mean, you do that? who is that? counting how many photos? But anyway. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Oh. You gotta remember, at that point in time, Facebook only lets you have one photo. Oh, as I recall true. in 2004. So you can only have one profile photo. You had to choose. Well, the difference between one and two and 12 and 13 seems... Yeah. yeah. Anyway. I don't know, Sammy. Anyway, okay, <laughs> Sammy. okay. So he wants that lucky 13. Yes, lucky 13. And so he he figures out to put, how to put up a 13th photo. Great. And he's like, okay, what more can I do? I guess they had a relationship status drop down. I have to admit, I never had a MySpace. But he wanted, you know, there it was like single, married, in a relationship. And he wanted to it to say in a hot relationship. And so he figured out how to do that. I guess that was a call out to his girlfriend. And so he keeps messing around with the site and he really realized, work. I know, right? So important. <laughs> such a great mind going to such important work. A touching tribute, yeah. definitely, to his significant other. <laughs> um, and so he decides that he wants to do like a little, he wants to like prank his friends a little bit. And so he develops a cross-site, he develops a cross-site scripting worm, which was kind of new and and most uh, sites were vulnerable to at that point in time. And this worm would, if you visited his site and ran the malicious code on his site, then your profile would friend request him and it would under heroes add most of all 
Sammy, I think, is the exact phrase. <laughs> oh, okay. So your friend, and it would add like, but most of all, Sammy is my hero. That's, That's right. right. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. okay. But most of all, yeah. Sammy is my hero. And then he, part of the code was that anyone who, he realized that like not so many people would, this would happen to just because he didn't have that many friends. So he made it self-replicating. So it would pass to that person's profile. So anyone who visited Sammy's profile or that infected person's profile would also get this uh, cross-site scripting worm and would become Sammy's friend and Sammy would be their (laughs) hero. And so within something like 24 hours, Sammy had a million friend requests and MySpace had to be taken down because of this like virulent worm. In the lead up to that, Sammy felt really bad and he tried to email them anonymously and tell them how to take it down, but he never got a response. And, you know, the site came down, they fixed it up, it went back up, I think, the next day. And, you know, Sammy was thought that he might have gotten, you know, off free. And then about six months later, he gets a warrant, his place gets searched, he gets charged for computer crimes, and he ends up doing... He ends up getting, he pleads guilty. He gets three years of probation without a computer, which now sounds Oof. like impossible. But the story has a happy ending. Sammy Kamkar is now a very famous security researcher. And he says that he actually enjoyed his three years out of computer time. So so when you say that, that they would visit Sammy's page and then they'd have to run the malicious code, was that just visiting his page or was that clicking on the 13th photo or like, how would he get it to execute? That's my one, the one question I have. Oh, I mean, maybe explain what a XSS bug is. So cross-site scripting is an injection of malicious scripts into benign websites. And it could be hidden anywhere. Like it could be in a photo, as you mentioned, it could be, you know, if you, there's a couple different ways you could do it. If you like injected a malicious script into sort of like a form, you could do it that way. And so Mm -hmm. when the malicious page in this case is loaded, the script is run and executed and, and takes place, whatever the... So it is. could have just been loading his profile page. Yeah. That could have been enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, got it. Yeah, I remember, I remember these when MySpace is out because I used to use them all the time. Another thing you could do on is inject code on your page that would would just take the names of anyone that visited your page. You could do this in the beginning of Facebook as well. And so that you could see who was looking at your MySpace page and how many times they visited, which was great. I now pay $30 a month for LinkedIn. For that so like, LinkedIn. <laughs> <that's right. laughs> yeah, exactly. Have those same sort of stalking awareness. Yeah. yeah, you could get that with Grease Monkey or, you know, with a little with a little buglet. Look, I mean, let's just say it very clearly. Sammy did nothing wrong. Yeah. Sammy, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page as you're talking, and it's just like, yeah, he was raided in 2006 by the United States Secret Service and Electronic Crimes Force, expanded from the Patriot Act. And it's just like, mm, come on. Yeah. Sammy wanted everyone to know that he was their hero. He did he, he wasn't coming for us. Yeah. Another one on your list that I think is really interesting, we've talked about on the podcast a little bit, is the Nest devices that were hacked. Can we talk about that one a little bit? Yeah, totally. There have been a couple of accounts of Nest cameras and thermostats and other sort of home devices that have been hacked in the last year or two. What I read was like a woman heard from her small child that there was like a monster in the child's room and she didn't believe oh yeah it's really terrible oh really terrible uh and the you know they, they she didn't believe her kid and then one night she came in and there was someone talking to her child like through a camera ah! 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's nightmare stuff. From what I've read, that these weren't actually hacks of the systems thems- of the Nest system itself, but rather uh, of the like Wi-Fi network the system was on. Mm, um, yeah. But security researchers have proven, even back in like 2016, that this is possible. And, and you know, and you can think of these terrible scenarios that involve like ransom or other awful things, right? One funny one would be like if someone hacked your Nest thermostat and turned it up to 90 and you had to pay X Bitcoin to like get your thermostat mm-hmm. back down. Um, but there are some pretty much more scary options. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's an interesting ransomware one I hadn't heard about. Yeah, messing with people's heat. Yeah. That's an interesting yeah. one. Yeah. Speaking of the witch, the, uh, another one on the list is the WannaCry hack. Do you want to talk about that one a little bit too? Sure. I think WannaCry is pretty famous. I think like even outside of the industry, people are sort of like have heard of WannaCry. So WannaCry is uh, somewhere in line with that idea of ransomware. So essentially it's malware that would infect your machine and basically encrypt all of the information on that machine. And you would need to pay a ransom, usually in some sort of cryptocurrency, to decrypt the information on that machine. WannaCry in particular was particularly difficult because it used something called Eternal Blue, which was an exploit developed by, we believe, the NSA to exploit a vulnerability in the Windows OS system that would allow you to remotely execute code. And so that's uh, sort of how they would get into these systems. And then they would run this malware that would encrypt your information and and demand ransom. I guess why it's so famous is because it infected a large percentage of the national health system machines in the UK and sort of shut down that system for a little bit. Oh, yeah, the that's NHS. What I yeah, 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 that's they right. They got into all that's... these hospitals and they couldn't use their, you know, whatever oxygen, you know, meters for without paying Bitcoin. Yeah, pretty was, terrifying. Yeah, the scary part. You imagine like working at the NSA and you, you open up the paper in the morning because I don't know, you probably still do read a paper because you're in DC and like a dog brings it to you and you're just like, you just see all the news and you're like, yeah, yeah, that was me. That was me. <laughs> mm, oh, damn it. Oh, wow, wow, wow. I told Mike not to do that. You know, just like, <laughs> oh. Yeah, we're supposed to keep that one in the box in the basement. Not supposed to let that one out. I try really hard not to let internet brain disease ruin me, but when you get into stuff like this, everything is a like, it goes seven levels deeper than you ever thought, man. And, you know, just like Alec Baldwin's going to walk in at any moment and say, shut it all down. Like it's just, It just gets so, this world in particular, because everything is, it feels like both people are spies and are playing spies, and it's just right. bananas. Usually at the end of the podcast, I read a lifeboat, which is a badge that people win for answering a question on Stack Overflow that has had a score of negative three or more, and it went up to a score of 20 or more. But today I'm going to do a special, I'm going to switch it up. I'm going to do something special. This is from our information security stack exchange. And it says, emergency method to erase all data off a machine within seconds. Imagine you're carrying a highly sensitive information with you, maybe on a mission in a war zone. You get in an ambush and quickly need to erase all the files before they fall into the wrong hands. This has to happen within seconds. And then uh, there's a few answers here. Fascinating. I'm so interested. What are what are yeah. some of the answers? <laughs> well, the answers are plasma cutter or thermite. Oh. So basically, <laughs> you need to destroy the hell out of that machine. <laughs> awesome. Oh, good. Yeah. No, you know what? Nu- nuclear fusion. Literally, 
disintegration. That's cool. That's a, that's a low-code solution to a problem. <laughs> that is a, I love those. That's a, I feel like that's sometimes the only solution, though. Yeah. 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 And there's a nice addendum here. Addendum, as Artem pointed out in his answer, for most use cases, encryption is enough. But if there was some information that was so valuable that even in 50 years, when quantum code breaking may become a reality, it cannot be released. So... Just so you Programmers, know. Programmers, <laughs> I, I got to say, sometimes we all live a little too far in the future. Like maybe maybe we should, I don't know, just put it in the bathtub and hit it with a hammer. Anyway, good life, Boaten. Yeah. So thank you to the Information Security Stack Exchange for providing that delightful information. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of this wonderful history and knowledge with us. Yeah, of course. Thanks so much. It was fun to chat hacks. If people want to find you online uh, or learn more about the work you're doing or sign up oh, for that cool cybersecurity program. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Share a few places and spaces where people can find you or find a, a cool way to sign up for your cybersecurity education. Yeah. So if you're interested in learning more about cybersecurity and training for it, you can check out the Full Stack Cyber Bootcamp, cyber.fullstackacademy.com. And you can reach me, rachel.troy, T-R-O-Y, at fullstackacademy.com. All right. I'm Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. And you can find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. I'm Sarah Chips, Director of Community here at Stack Overflow. And you can find me on GitHub at Sarah Joe. And I'm Paul Ford, co-founder of Postlight. And uh, we're a software firm. You can check us out at postlight.com. And I'm a friend of Stack Overflow. Wonderful. Wonderful.